time is pre-recorded. Morning, glory, America, bonjour, hi, Canada. That music means it's the last radio hour of the week. Time for the Hillsdale Dialogue. All things Hillsdale are found at hillsdale.edu. But for many, many years, I've been leaving this hour with Dr. Larry Arne and his colleagues or his colleagues at Hillsdale College. In fact, if you Google on iTunes the Hillsdale Dialogue, you will find a comprehensive listing ready for your listening pleasure that goes back, well, my gosh, uh, it's a decade now. So Dr. Arne and I have been at this a long time. We're in the middle of a five-part series. This is the middle hour in a series with... Uh, Glenn Elmers, who is the author of this book, The Soul of Politics, Harry Jaffa and the Fight for America. Today, we're going to talk about four critical texts that he talked. Next week, we're going to talk about his three major battles. And then week five, which I don't even know if Glenn knows about yet, we're going to talk about Jaffa and Shakespeare as a transition to uh, doing the history plays. Because, Glenn, you persuaded me and I persuaded Dr. Arne that Harry Jaffa's love of the Shakespeare history plays ought to make up an hour. So we're, we're actually extending your, your non-binding, non-paying contract for another hour of radio. So I didn't know if anyone sprung that on you yet. I accept this. So I give my consent to this, which is what's required. Okay, okay. Glenn, you was not asking. <laughs> in some cases, dispense. In some cases, consent is not required. <laughs> You'll figure this out. You know, you, you've got a peppercorn. Uh, okay, the, the soul of politics. I want to get to these four texts, because I think, Glenn, you've done a wonderful thing. You have put in one place the reason why people ought to read the perpetuation of our political institutions, Lincoln's Lyceum uh-huh. speech of 1838, Jefferson's Aristotle letter of 1813, Lincoln's temperance address of 1842 in Springfield, and then to contemplate Churchillian magnanimity. And I want to even know if Dr. Arn can even say this word, megalopsia. How do you say that? Yeah, how do you say that, Larry Arn? Megalopsia. Oh, rats. I wouldn't even close. Try it again. (laughs) Well, mega, it means big, right? So. And then suke, suke, that means the soul. So it means somebody with a big soul. So let's go in the reverse order, Glenn Elmer, since Churchill is closest to us. Talk to us about Harry Jaffa and Winston Churchill's great soul, because if I let Arne go first, you won't get a word in. (laughs) Well, Larry does know a lot about Churchill. Yes, he does. I'll just say from my perspective, by the way, I'm on the Hillsdale campus right now and gave a nice uh, talk uh, to some of the faculty and grad students in the politics department. And we had a great discussion. And, and this came up, actually. Uh, it's tempting to see the situation in the country today and despair a little bit, to be a little pessimistic or a little cynical. And Joppa always thought that despair was both a moral failing and an intellectual error, in part because he always emphasized the, the the permanence, the truth of human freedom, especially what he called metaphysical freedom of the human mind. And that meant nothing is ever determined, even against what seemed to be hopeless odds. And he loved the story of Churchill in May of 1940, facing down what appeared to be the overwhelming force of the Nazi threat and was just defiant and and rallied the, the British people to fight. And against all odds, Britain defeated the Nazis. And Churchill thought, I mean, sorry, and and Jaffa thought that that example of Churchill was an enduring lesson, both about the indeterminacy of history and the need to perform noble action to fight the good fight. Now, Dr. Arn, I have on my bookshelf, because you 
uh, prodded me to get it and read it in Marlboro. I did not know, though, until I read Glenn's book, The Soul of Politics, that Harry Jaffa considered Marlboro to be maybe the greatest work of literature of the 20th century. Am I recalling that correctly? Yeah, political history. Uh, greatest work of political history. He, he thought that Strauss thought that. And uh, he thought that Strauss thought that Bismarck in Germany and Churchill in England had made such a contribution each for their century. And uh, he, he, you know, that book is uh, Examination of Political Prudence, and that's the book in which, by the way, Churchill uses the word genius most importantly, which is a fundamental word, right? The, uh, it means either the moving spirit of a thing or else some vast and perfect example of a thing. And, and uh, Churchill's, the way Churchill uses it in that book, it's like Plato. He says, uh, nothing but genius, the daimon in man, can answer the riddles of war. And because genius is much rarer than the rarest and purest of diamonds, wars are mainly tales of muddle. And that recalls Plato's thematic sentence in The Republic, the cities will be miserable until the philosophers are kings. Well, what a, what a remarkable pointer. It's a compliment, obviously, but what a pointer for moderns to be told by Leo Strauss and Harry Jaffa that you have to read a book, Marlboro, by Churchill. And I, I did not know this. And so, Glenn Elmer's, how often do you read Marlboro? I mean, how often did Harry Jaffa take it up as an example of having to be deeply read in Churchill because of the greatness of his soul? Um, I've only read it twice myself. Um, Jaffa had formally retired from teaching when I became his student. I mean, he was still around and very active. Um, so Larry would be a better position to speak about how often uh, Jaffa brought it up in the classroom. Um, I, I saw him more when he was out of the classroom, although still very much a teacher, <laughs> uh, as, as he always was. So, Well, Larry, if um, you drop Marlboro on a student's desk, they're likely to cut the class. Yeah. <laughs> well, he, he to study with Professor Jaffa, he, Professor Jaffa was compact. I wonder if Glenn agrees with this, by the way. He was compact in one way. Uh, he, he, his advice to the student was, learn a few things well. Uh, first thing I've heard him say was, in class, was uh, when people get old like me, they start making a list of the hundred greatest books. Life is too short to master a hundred great books. I have a list of the three greatest books, and Churchill was not on that list, by the way. So, but what he thought, like when you studied with him, you learned, like I, you know, I can quote from memory that thing about gene, genius, and I can quote from memory quite a number of things about Churchill, because I regard them as important and uh, uh, illustrative of the heart of the matter. Well, that's what you learn to do with Jaffa. And, of course, it was hard to keep up with him, because he was not any good at going through page by page and telling you what something means. Uh, when I studied the Nicomachean Ethics with him, this is something Hillsdale College students would never put up with, by the way, we never got out of book one. <laughs> <laughs> and we skipped the part in book one about Plato because it's too complicated for us. 
<laughs> it was, you know, <laughs> and this was a graduate se- seminar. Well, it is in this chapter on Churchill or on this segment on Churchill, Glenn, where you talk about memorization. I myself believe in memorization of short things like the Israeli, a majority mm-hmm. is better than the best repartee or Sula. No friend has done me a favor nor enemy an injury that I have not repaid in full. But those are one sentence memorizations. Apparently, uh, Jaffa admired that Churchill was much more committed to the lengthier exercises. Uh, um, yeah, yeah, that's true. Uh, by the way, since we're since we're boasting about memorization uh, and, and Nick McKeon ethics book one, I, I've heard from other people besides Larry that sometimes it would take him weeks just to get past the first sentence. Uh, and the first sentence of the Nick McKeon ethics is, of course, very, very memorable. Uh, every art and every inquiry, every habit and every practice appears to aim at some good. And there's a wealth of wisdom in that. Uh, sorry, that was just an aside. Well, that's a good um, aside. Yeah. <laughs> but but back to Churchill. What is it about Churchill that he considered great sold? So uh, statesmanship is a kind of practical genius, right? Political philosophers uh, have an expertise in, in the realm of theory, in the enduring truth. Uh, and, and Joppa and Strauss both considered the philosopher to be the highest way of life, uh, committed to the, the, the endless pursuit of wisdom. But the practical world has its own peculiar genius, its own peculiar dignity. And there's a special kind of uh, great soldness, great virtue uh, that excels in the political world. And it's an inspiration even for the philosopher to see that kind of human excellence. And Churchill, along with Lincoln, were probably the greatest examples of that in the modern world, whom both Strauss and Jaffa greatly admired. And again, they thought that they showed something about human greatness that was instructive even for the philosopher. Now, Larry, people will not know that at Hillsdale College there are collected the Martin Gilbert papers and the Harry Jaffa papers. My question here, did Jaffa lead you to Gilbert or did Gilbert lead you to Jaffa? Uh, uh, Jaffa led me to Gilbert. That's a precise fact. Uh, uh, Jaffa and Harold Rood led me to Churchill, and also I was bitten by a dog and was house-sitting for a guy who I was laid up in bed, and house-sitting for a guy who had all the Churchill books beside the bed. Uh, but then, uh, Professor Jaffa, Glenn, we all have similar experiences. Professor, a time came when Professor Jaffa began to teach, uh, take me seriously, <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> and partly because I won a Rotary Fellowship. So he told me I had to go and meet Martin Gilbert, and it was sort of an order. So <laughs> well, orders are when they come from the right people are well heeded. Don't go anywhere, America. We're going to come back about talk about Jefferson in 1813. A letter he sent to John Adams. Do not go anywhere. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All things Hillsdale at hillsdale.edu. There may be only one or two people in the Beltway who can actually tell the truth. You're listening to one of them. The truth continues when Hugh Hewitt returns in a moment. Back America to here at the Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. Part three of a five-part series on Harry Jaffa. Uh, the Soul of Politics is Glenn Elmer's new book. Uh, he and Larry Arn are both students at Professor Jaffa, probably because I hung around with the East Coast Strausians. I had never read Jefferson's Aristotle letter until I read Glenn Elmer's book. And so I need you I need you to describe it for us poorly educated people, Glenn. What is this letter? And, and you know, I read it now, I've read the soul of politics, but Tell people why they ought to go find it. 
Sure. So, you know, Jefferson and Adams had a little bit of a falling out, but then sort of resumed their long friendship and carried on a correspondence that Joffre once described as one of the highlights of the English language. I mean, two immensely well-educated and influential, thoughtful men exchanging these wonderful letters. And at one point, they're talking about, okay, what is it we, we try to accomplish here in America? And Jefferson points out that a lot of regimes, a lot of political communities claim to have the rule of the best, and that's a Greek word, aristocracy, the rule of the best. But in many cases, it's fake or phony aristocracy. And this is the problem of European feudalism, right? When aristocracy becomes inherited, and we see this even with, you know, great wealthy families here in the United States, by the time you get to the second or third generation, a kind of dissipation and complacency sets in, and the greatness sort of fades away. And yet, in a, in a, in a hereditary aristocracy and feudalism, these people still have all kinds of special privileges because of who they're born to, even though they may not be worth anything. And, Aristot- and, and, and Jefferson was saying there should be a real kind of aristocracy, a real aristocracy of merit, and that arises from equal, equal opportunity, right? Not inherited privileges, but equal opportunity. That leads to the, to the best being able to excel, and that's what America provided. And so he said America offered the opportunity for the natural aristoi, the rule of the best to emerge naturally from equal political rights. Now, uh, Dr. Orn, Hillsdale is committed to that. I don't know that America is anymore. Do you think it is? Well, uh, you, you no, it's not. And yep. except that we've substituted a new definition of aristoi. You know, aristoi is just yeah, the best is what it, how it translates, the best. And what we think now is that the best is the expert. And, you know, like Anthony Fauci is the archangel angel Gabriel. And because that's because he's trained in the tools of modern science, and they are the only way to know the truth. And, you know, that's a prescription for despotism for two reasons. And one is not everybody can be trained in that, and no one, part of the first point, can be trained in all of it, right? You know, on, on Tuesday of this week, Josh Kroshar from the Hotline Journal informed me that in Virginia it is quite a hot-button issue that Thomas Jefferson High School, a the number one high school in the state, has abandoned its testing requirement. It used to be a pure admission like Stuyvesant in New York via test. That's been done away with for diversity. Is that what you're talking about, Dr. Arn, the abandonment of that? Well, I, I, I'm, I'm uh, well, first of all, what, the change in the, in the nature of knowledge, what can we know, you know? And in the classics, this is very fundamental. Glenn can help me explain it. In, in the classics, they start with what people say. Uh, Aristotle loves to use the, frame, uh, the formulation, shall we begin with what is known simply or known to us? And it's impossible to begin with what's known simply. We only know what we know. Yeah. And so we start by examining what we know, and that leads to a conversation. And in that conversation, we refine what we know. And that's very different from the scientific method where you test by a rigorous, and you know, that's a great way to find out some kinds of truth. But can it find out the truth, uh, whether it's good for a people to be confined to their homes for months on the, months on the prospect of death or wider, more deaths? And that's, that's not a question that you can answer by the scientific method. And today we pretend that we can. And I should say, this is, you know, one of the two or three major themes in the life of Winston Churchill. He says in uh, a wonderful essay called Mass Effects in Modern Life, 
he says that uh, we have been conscripted by modern science. <laughs> no generation of, of people have ever been so roughly handled as we are. And, you know, if you just think about it for a minute, the, the, you know, we sort of wait for the latest study. And the front page news is often somebody, whoever it was, and it's often obscure who it was, did a study. And somebody uses that as a claim to what, for what policy should be. To power. The next president. A claim to power. I'll be right back with Dr. Larry Arnn and Glenn Elmer's author of The Soul of Politics as the Hillsdale Dialogue continues all things Hillsdale at Hillsdale.edu. America, Hugh Hewitt, the Hillsdale Dialogue underway, the last radio hour of the week. This week with Dr. Larry Arn, the third of five parts with Glenn Elmers, whose brand new book, The Soul of Politics, I cannot recommend higher to you, though they are confusing me. Uh, Glenn Elmers says Harry Jaffa, and, and Larry Arn says Harry Jaffa, or vice versa. Either way, the audio dyslexic in me, just as confused <laughs> as can be. Uh, Glenn Elmers, I, I, I devoted the longest segment. I organized this so we could talk about the Lyceum Address the longest, the 1838, because you talked about it first, and you didn't do it in order, so I understood you to be saying, this is where you have to begin. Tell us about that address, how Professor Jaffa Jaffa would approach it, and why we need to know about it. Uh, I did that partly because I wanted to tie, partly the book is, is trying to connect Jaffa's teaching to relevant political concerns today. I want people to understand why this stuff matters. So I began with that because it's still certainly true now, but when I was writing this book in the summer of 2020, the whole country was turned upside down by these lawless mobs and these riots, and the Lyceum Address is very much about that. And Lincoln's point is not only that uh, lawlessness, mobs, mob rule, violence is a great threat to, self, to self-government, to democracy, but that it leads to something even more dangerous. And that is, uh, in order to restore some sense of order, some sense of stability, in order to get their, their protection and, 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 and safety back, the people will, some, will often turn to a demagogue, to a tyrant, because lawlessness can't go on forever. And so a demagogic tyrant, a despot, will emerge just to restore order. And that's, in a way, the greater danger of lawlessness. And that was very much on my mind, and I think it's still a very relevant concern in American politics today. And that's you know, the theme of the Lyceum Address. How relevant it is is on Monday of this week, I uh, interviewed Brett Baer about his very fine book, To Rescue the Republic, about a very great man, General Grant. And the end of Brett's book, and he talked about it in a crowd at the Nixon Library, is the pulling down of the Grant statue in the Presidium in San Francisco. And what an absolute astonishing ignorance that displays of the man and his times and of what he stood for. And Larry Arndt, there is in in the Grant book, as there is in Glenn's book, this great admiration of Grant for Lincoln. I, I, I mean, a, a grand man, a great man having uh, sort of an admiration for a greater man. I think that is just so fundamental to understanding Lincoln. But it also goes to the idiocy of mobs pulling down statues. Well, we have to uh, see the uh, in the in the age in which we live, which is a despotic age, by the way, because if science is replaced by technology, science means knowing, technology means making, making, and so if that happens, then of course the past is in the way, because it's a standard and it 
indicates, you know, maybe there was some wisdom back there that, that, that we could learn from. No, we have to create. And if you want to understand that, put, put sublimely and grimly, read the novel 1984, where the protagonist, his job, along with what must be millions of others, is to simply sit all day and rewrite every document, every newspaper article, every academic paper, every encyclopedia, every book, in line with what the party says is the truth today. And, and the path then becomes a river, and we, we are in control of it. And that defies the, the law of contradiction, which is expressed in Aristotle in one way as this alone is denied even to God to make what has been not to have been. And, you know, to go back to Grant, Grant was a wonderful human being. And, of course, he was an imperfect human being, too. All of us, all of us are. <laughs> and this, uh, on, on the slavery question, Grant was energetic in trying to, to liberate and protect the former slaves and use the army to do that. And that's a great thing. And these people who are tearing down his statues, you just have to ask about them. What the hell did they ever do? What you do know? they know either? Uh, if they got to Hilltail's campus, which, by the way, you're at, Glenn, and I've never been invited to in October because it's the nice time of year to go. I only get invited in the dead of winter to Hillsdale. But <laughs> the mob would probably tear down Frederick Douglass, not, not just seeing a statue. They, must, they would just assume that it must be torn down. Glenn, um, in terms of what... Professor Jaffa would teach about the Lyceum Address. What is the most important feature of it? And, and by the way, how can he anticipate in 1838, long before his Lincoln-Douglas debates? I mean, it's, it's, it's 20 years before his Lincoln-Douglas debates, how this defense must be mounted. Right, right. So, I mean, he was talking about a real problem. It was, in fact, uh, you know, the, the question of slavery, of, of abolition, is already very much uh, on the scene at this time. Uh, Elijah Lovejoy, an abolitionist editor, uh, had been lynched. There had been mob violence uh, going on. And so, you know, it's not a new problem. Um, but, yeah, so the, the real danger, as I said, is not just lawlessness as such, and, but that, that's, of course, a great threat, is what happens? How do the people react to that? And they will abandon in order to get their safety back. And Aristotle says the purpose of politics is first to achieve safety, right? That we have to live. And it's ultimately to achieve the good life, happiness. But safety has to be first. We can't live if we can't survive. We can't do anything else. And in order to get the safety back, people will turn to the worst possible tyrant. And that's the great danger of abandoning the rule of law. So, Larry Oren, you talk about Lincoln a lot. And he said himself he was raised on Scripture and Shakespeare. Those were his tutors. Where does he pick up? Where does that come from, the ability to deliver the Lyceum Address 20 years before? I mean, he's a young man. Well, it's not fair. No, it's not. He was, he was a genius. <laughs> so, you know, people ask me, you know, Churchill also didn't go to college, right? It's just amazing. And he wrote some things that were profound. Well, it's not fair. <laughs> it, uh, he was just a very remarkable human being. And, you know, these things, are, you know, where did Socrates come from? Where did Einstein come from, right? You can't explain those people as the influences upon them. Human freedom itself indicates that that wouldn't be the explanation. You know, Einstein early in his life was a patent clerk. He was a bureaucrat, you know, looking at scientific things and finding out if they were novel or not. 
But there was a spark in him that we all have some form of. He just had a lot. Well, well, this address in particular is so relevant to today because it's a demand that we pay attention to our political institutions, which did not then and not now, now to control uh, uh, be controlled by administrative state. It, it ought not to be. It has always been self-government. And we have gotten so far away from that that I think it's fair to say Lincoln would find our government unrecognizable. Do you agree with me on that, Glenn Elmers? Yes, yes, absolutely. And on that point, let me just pick up on something Larry mentioned, but I want to just elaborate a little bit. The problem with the scientific method, which is the basis of our phony aristocracy, our ruling class of experts today, is that it misuses the scientific method. Science and technology are wonderfully powerful, but they are best applied to inanimate objects. They observe, they count, they measure, uh, they weigh, and that's fine, but that's not what human beings are. Human beings are rational creatures with a soul, and the scientific method does not adequately capture that. And the problem with using modern science as the basis of, uh, of our ruling class experts is that it treats human beings as if they were inanimate objects, merely physical beings. And that, as Larry said, will always lead to despotism in the end. You know, it's interesting. We have a minute left in this segment, Dr. Arndt. Uh, Winston Churchill is himself both a natural aristocrat and uh, a hereditary one. And he doesn't make much use of his time at British public schools, but he makes use of his time on the Indian frontier and Glenn describes his self-education, which you've often described. I remain awestruck by what he did and how he refused to waste his time. Well, he, you know, first of all, there's a, uh, uh, Churchill's fail, failures in school are exaggerated. Uh, he, he was brilliant at some things and recognized it for it. He just couldn't be made to concentrate on things that didn't interest him. Well, as Glenn says, he was a great speaker, a declaimer of the first degree. At, uh, well, at memorization, too. Yes. But also, you know, he loved to read history and learned a lot about it. And he could, one of his first intellectual achievements was playing with little toy soldiers, and he could reproduce, reproduce precisely major battles in history. So he was, you know, always a really smart guy. But then... He says it was not until his 29th year, if I remember the year rightly, that the desire for learning came upon him. And now, all of a sudden, he he realized he, he always wanted to know. Uh, the first line in Aristotle's Metaphysics is the human being stretches himself out to know. He figured out what he wanted to know. He wanted, like he says, I wanted the uh, Socrates story. I would have paid somebody a pound for a lecture on it. He says, uh, he heard it said many times, and he believes it's true, that the Sermon on the Mount is the last word in Christian ethics. But what were ethics? Ah. <laughs> so, you know, he just, uh, you know, he, in other words, he's starting to think on a different level. And it, grip, it gripped him, and it never let go, by the way. Well, it never let go of Jaffa either. Uh, one of the things I want to compliment Glenn on before we wrap this is that uh, you've captured... Just how dedicated the man was. Next week, we'll talk about his endless battles with everyone and, and then back to Shakespeare. But, I mean, he really was a dedicated, lifelong learner. Absolutely. And, you know, to his credit, he even changed his mind on some things. He liked to point to Churchill's essay, Consistency in Politics. And Jotham pointed out that when circumstances change, the prudent man has to change along with them. That doesn't mean there's no permanent <laughs> truth or objective morality. It just means you have to 
adapt yourself to what's required in the moment. And that even applies intellectually. And, you know, uh, there were some important sort of uh, specific ways of interpreting America and, and some modern philosophers that Jaffa developed his thinking on. So he was always constantly learning and revising his thoughts. Remarkable. We'll, we'll be back to talk about the fourth of the major texts that Harry Jaffa made sure his students, Glenn and Larry included among them, learned. Dr. Arn and Dr. Elmer's returns right after this. This is The Hugh Hewitt Show. America, the Hillsdale Dialogues are all available at HughForHillsdale.com. Everything for Hillsdale, including an application, and they are becoming more and more numerous because parents are increasingly demanding their children have an opportunity to learn, are available at Hillsdale.edu. All of these dialogues, hundreds of them are available at iTunes. I've just discovered, and they're much easier to actually access there. iTunes, the Hillsdale Dialogue. You can go back to the beginning and just move through them. Uh, let's conclude this week, uh, Glenn Elmers and Dr. Arne. By talking about the temperance address. Now, that might put people off. But when I read about how it was perceived, the problem of fanaticism and how Lincoln was going after the most dangerous people in the world, those who think themselves perfect and in charge of the perfection of others, fanatics. I just think this can't get enough attention, Glenn Elmer's. Well done. <laughs> right, thank you. Uh, I mean, when you study the history of political philosophy, uh, the way Strauss taught it, that is looking at it not as just, you know, antiquities or curiosities of the past, but as sources of real truth, you're amazed to discover how relevant things are. Yes. <laughs> turns out a lot, yeah, turns out a lot of what Lincoln said is relevant. And the temperance address, right, as you said, is about this issue of moral fanaticism. So the two great sort of moral conundrums of the time in America were, were slavery, of course, but also temperance, you know, not drinking. Uh, and, and Lincoln points out, you know, it's fine to encourage people to give up alcohol. Alcoholism is a real problem. But if you become so... Uh, fixated on your own moral superiority. Uh, Jaffa liked the phrase, people in love with the odor of their own moral superiority. Uh, you become a fanatic, right? And, and it makes citizenship impossible. Citizenship depends on a kind of friendship. This is a great lesson of Aristotle. And when people become so fanatic about a moral cause that they can't even see other people as fellow citizens, it makes self-government impossible. And that's one key lesson of the temperature. Uh, Larry, uh, Arn, uh, have you taught this letter or this speech up at Hillsdale? Have you had stu because students are prone to this, right? They are often prone to moral superiority and to crusades. And I gather Lincoln's whole purpose is by all means crusade, but crusade with an eye on yourself. It's very Christian in its essence. Yeah, well, it's, it, it, I think I think the book might be in, that uh, speech might be in our Constitution reader, but at Hillsdale College we have. Uh, many tools to combat a sense of superiority. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. One of them is their president. Yes. <laughs> yeah, no, it's, uh, and see, just think, a great strain, little noted, but I see it clearly, in Churchill is humility. And to be a student, to be, to be a thinker, to be a statesman, there have to be some things for which you are obedient. And, you know, nobody knows all the truth. And so Lincoln, you know, by the way, who led us through our most disastrous war, was always fighting in the name of policies that were essentially moderate. And that's because it's, it's better to get along and think and talk than it is to hit each other. And 
you know, Churchill knew that, and Lincoln knew that, and it was never absent. And that points to something beyond politics, too, because Glenn said right at the beginning, uh, in Harry Jaffa and in Aristotle and in Shakespeare and in Lincoln and in Churchill, the highest kind of life is not the political life, although that's a very high kind of life. And the political life is to shelter something. If you, if you read in Book 5 of Aristotle's Politics, there's this chilling description of how uh, the only way that the tyrant can perpetuate himself, and that way is to destroy our friendships and our sense of wonder. You mustn't look beyond, and, and our faith, you mustn't look beyond the tyrant. And everything has to be concerned, consumed in the dull constancy of petty public affairs. Just go read social media and see what's going on there now. See, yeah, and the fanatics must, in fact, harness that. They, they, that's point, Glenn. You have written a book for our time because you are focused on the fanaticism of both left and right. And I'm sure Jaffa, as we will talk about next week in his arguments on the right, was also concerned about fanatics on the right, just as much as he was about fanatics on the left, if not more. Yeah, sure. Some of his most strenuous arguments were were other conservatives, because he thought getting conservatism right was paramount. Uh, Dr. Arn, last word of the week. Um, when, When we talk about Lincoln's temperance address and fanaticism, Again, the question I asked about the Lyceum address, would he recognize American politics today? Obviously, uh, black emancipation would be uh, welcomed by him, but also is obviously, I don't think he'd, he would have p- part and parcel with either the far right or the far left now. Well, I, you know, of course, Martin Gilbert taught me to say, what would Lincoln say? Well, he's dead. He's dead. <laughs> we can know what he did say. And, and, uh, Lincoln never saw, I think he might have anticipated here and there, this comprehensive engineering project that the state and also the education system has become. And, you know, everything's got to be uniform, and everything's got to be stamped out in a pattern at the top that's repeated all the way down to the bottom. And that's just despotism, right? And that's flourishing in America now. And we're going to beat it via the Hillsdale Dialogue, via hillsdale.edu, and via Glenn Elmer's book, The Soul of Politics. We'll be back next week and the week thereafter with both of these gentlemen. Stay tuned, America. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Adam. Thank you, Generalissimo. Talk to you Monday on the next Hugh Hewitt Show. absolutely positively need the truth this is where you turn this is the hugh hewitt show